0: Hello, and welcome to episode 110 of Craft, Cook, Read, Repeat, a conversation about crafting food and books. I'm Monica. And I'm Courtney. Today is Friday, March 3rd, 2023. Big thank you to all of our listeners, both old and new. We hope this podcast will continue to be something you put on repeat. How's it going, Courtney? Welcome to Sacramento, Monica. We are here in our hotel room. Looking at our beautiful state capital, or we would be if we hadn't closed the curtains for better sound.
1: But we're at Stitches West. We are. We're here for the yarn. It's pretty exciting because we are here with probably a thousand other people. Is that an exaggeration? Do you think? No, I think that's pretty accurate. I would think so. So there's lots of there's lots of hotel doors closing. There's also lots of beautiful hand knit wear. Walking around everywhere we go, and it's so exciting.
0: Yes, things are still a little quiet because it's it is Friday, and the market and the classes started yesterday. But I think more people will be here on Saturday, so we don't have a full insight into like the sweater of the year. We are waiting to find out what it will be.
1: What was the sweater of the year last
0: year? Did I miss this? I don't know if we discussed it. <gasps> what was everyone wearing last year? I don't know. There was a lot of kits for the rainbow sweater, which I ended up making, I feel right. like. That would have been my impulses, that the rainbow
1: sweater was the sweater of last year.
0: Yeah. And I saw someone else wearing a love note, which I am wearing today. So that one continues to be popular as well. I don't know. We'll find out. There Very weren't exciting. too many people at the marketplace last night. But so this is this is the episode when we do things in reverse. So we save the yarn for last because we want to give you all the details So we'll start off with on the nightstand and then do on the table and then on the easel and then on the needles. So if you're accustomed to skipping over certain parts,
1: check the show notes and it will tell you where each section begins.
0: Yeah. So on the nightstand, I just want to warn everyone because I went on vacation, but I only have three books. I I, know. I have four-ish Wow, this is exciting! I Everything have, is backwards. <laughs> it is a totally topsy turvy world today, apparently. Yeah, it, it was. It was a delightful vacation, but it was much. It was not a relaxing vacation. We went to Joshua Tree and we did a bunch of hiking, and then we went to another place and did more hiking. And we went to an art museum. We did college tours. We went ate out every night, so it was not a lot of downtime. Right. To and work it on was-
1: and you got snowed on. I mean,
0: well, we didn't actually get snowed on, but there was snow in, in the mountains surrounding Los Angeles, which was just bizarre. Totally. I, I mean, it. some of them get snow. Everything is backwards. Everything got snow. <laughs> oh my gosh. Driving, even driving up here, there was so much snow yeah. like that we could see where you don't usually see snow. Certainly. I mean, yeah, not even at this time of the year. Quite beautiful. Yeah. Okay. So I only have three books. Let's hear about them. So the first one is Miss Del Rio, a novel of Dolores Del Rio, the first major Latina star in Hollywood by Barbara Mayuca. So this is historical fiction, and it is the story of Dolores Del Rio, who I had never heard of, but was apparently a Hollywood star in the silent film era. She came from a very wealthy Mexican family and went to Hollywood. Movie star, made a pretty good transition to the talkies, which was a big worry because people were worried about her accent since English was oh, not her dear. first language. And then after World War II, as she was getting older and racism in Hollywood was getting worse. She moved back to Mexico just in time for a golden age of Mexican film and had a whole additional or continuation of her career there. She was friends with Frida Kahlo. She was apparently... The first female judge at the Cannes Film Festival. She started a bunch of daycare centers for the children of the service workers in the film industry, and just had this whole incredible life. And so this was this was her story. Uh, so I don't know which parts of it were true. I didn't do a lot of research, but it was just a uh, super fascinating. And as a bonus, it's told by a totally fictional uh, lifelong friend of hers who grew up in her household was the daughter of one of the seamstresses, fled the country during the Mexican Revolution, ended up living in Los Angeles and kind of having a normal person life, reconnected with Dolores. There's a mystery in her background as well that you're also trying to solve. So you get the two contrasting stories of life of Mexican-American women. The story was great. The writing was a little stiff at times, but the story was super fascinating and fun. And you get all the Hollywood glamour and she's... Dating Orson Welles while he's filming um, Citizen Kane, so there's all these backstories, and of course, Frida Kahlo is just a whole story so in herself. Color- She's so yeah. colorful. Yeah. So and you know, and you get a lot of Mexican history again, more LA history that was super fun. Yeah. So that was uh, very enjoyable. And then Twice in a Lifetime by Melissa Barron. This a uh, sort of a romance, kind of a little bit of sliding doors, time travel kind of business. It is the story of Ilsa. She is a uh, Late 20s, is from Chicago, but has suffered from anxiety and depression her whole life. And she'd kind of gotten things together. And then her mom gets sick. And so she has to take care of her. And then after she passes away, it's just obviously very stressful. So she decides she needs a new situation, moves to St. Louis, finds a great new job, is able to buy a cute little house. And things are going pretty well. And she's meeting some nice new people, managing things pretty well. And then she gets a text from Ewan on her phone and he says, I'm your husband, but we're not together anymore. He's clearly from the future. He has like photos of their wedding and he's trying to save their relationship. This is the sliding doors thing. So she's obviously a little confused, but they get to know each other. And, and so they're talking back and forth and, and they're trying to figure out how to, you know, save their relationship. And so she's working on a lot of things, but it kind of seems like now she's going to be By making these changes to improve their relationship, it might actually end up leading her towards a life without him. So there's a lot going on. I really I like the characters. It was again really hard. One of those difficult books. If you're reading about someone with a lot of anxiety and they're doing that internal monologue, it's hard to read. You know, even if it's not something that you suffer from, reading about it is really difficult. And she has gone through a ton of stuff. Her dad is horrible person but she does have a really good support network and she's oh she's an artist too so there's a lot of cool art stuff that they talk about in her process and she meets up with another artist there's there's a lot of really cool parts of this book but also a really hard read so I don't know that I would call it a straight-up romance because there is so much other stuff going on but I like the time travel part of not it's not I don't know what do you would call it it's not really time travel they don't
1: non-linear timeline yeah that's what book of
0: the month oh okay calls it interesting because they don't ever cross they just they're but they're talking from it's like whatever that one with the mail the mailbox movie oh yes in the house and yeah so anyway yeah so that one if you're up for the hard parts it was a good story as well and then finally hell of a book by Jason Mott which I'd been meaning to read for a while because my husband recommended it my mom liked it a lot as well so I put it on my <laughs> I put it on my book club list and we read it for our book club Gosh, and it is structurally very interesting, so it's a little hard to give a plot description. There's an author who has written a book, and he's on book tour. And so it's kind of about his book tour, but he's there's also a parallel story of a little kid who is very, very dark-skinned black kid who's going through a lot of struggles. There's the constant background of another black man having been shot. There's the author who's on tour, keeps seeing... This kid, and we're not sure if he's real or, you know, what kind of a figment of the imagination he is. There's a lot of stuff going on. So we just had the book club discussion, which was great because most of us came into it going, this was kind of a weird book and I'm not sure if I liked it, but I really wanted to discuss it with people. And I think we all came out of it with, I don't know if a better understanding, but a more interesting understanding. We kind of talked through some things. So it was a really interesting book. It's also structurally interesting. So I think when I was summing it up, I said it felt like it definitely wasn't a beach read. You wouldn't pick this up just because you were looking for like a super fun, easy, enjoyable read. But it was worth a read. And I did ultimately like it. Enjoy seems too strong a word, but I definitely appreciated it. It won the National Book Award, I think. And it was very cool. I mean, there was a lot of interesting things, but you're not going to just be along for the ride. You have to be willing to do a little bit of work with this book ultimately worth it. And those are my three books. This feels so short. I feel like I should talk more. But I'll let Courtney talk. I can't believe this. It is truly... uh, I know. You have more books than me?
1: I do. Wow. It's crazy. Anyway, I have four books for you today. The first one is The Night Ship by Jess Kidd. Jess Kidd wrote uh Things in Jars. She writes really... Her content is always slightly off-kilter and interesting. This book, it has two different storylines. 1629 is Macon's storyline, and she is an orphan coming out of the Netherlands. And then Gil is in 1989, and he is an orphan. He has been sent to live with his grandfather on this remote island off the coast of Western Australia. Most of Macon's story is about the journey. She's on a ship and she's she's been orphaned by her mother and there is the promise of her father who she has never known but is apparently a wealthy ranch owner somewhere in Australia and she is in the care of her, nursemaid who, let's just say there are a lot of catastrophes on board this ship. And Megan is, I, I think she's about 12 and she's a little bit of a, she's curious and she's getting into a little bit of trouble on board ship because she's not content to sit in her tiny little bunk room and she's not content to chat with the proper ladies. She wants to figure out how the ship works. And so it's a lot about her exploring the ship and it's not pretty. And then Gil has had a really difficult life and going to this island to be with his grandfather is not going to solve any of that. And he's kind of a different kid and he, he doesn't feel like he fits in anywhere and his story intersects with Macon's in a way that he is both curious about the shipwreck. There's like stories about the shipwreck on the island. And then they they're each having visions of both the future. She's having visions of the future and he's having visions of the past in a way that Jess Kid is able to navigate with her own sense of magical realism. It's really well done. Great book. I, I recommend it. And that's The Night Ship. And then I have two books that i did not select for this coincidence but basically they're both about gold rush bordellos <laughs> <laughs> and i mean you you just can't plan this stuff sometimes no. monica had read and recommended a dangerous business the new novel by Jane Smiley, who's a solid gold novelist. Monica reviewed it fairly recently, so I won't go into tremendous depth. But that is the story of two young prostitutes in Monterey, California, during the gold rush, and they are also into like a whodunit. They're trying to solve some crimes. But on the other hand, they're also working women, and the stories they tell are rather interesting, So that is combined with a book called Eliza Waite by Ashley Sweeney. And this takes place a little bit later than the Jane Smiley in turn of the century, 1900, Seattle to Alaska, the tail end of the Gold Rush era, sort of.
0: Alaska had theirs later, right?
1: Right. But it was still tapering, tapering out. So Eliza, she was brought up in Kalamazoo. Maybe that's the other one. They're both from the Midwest. Both my Eliza's technically not a pro, she's not a prostitute, but she hangs out with the at the bordello, so it's fun. The, it's a fun coincidence for me. Initially, she is married off to this guy that her parents deem he's gonna get her out of a situation because she has a son. It's messy. It's complicated because it's her uncle's fault. And nobody, this is my problem with it. Everybody knows it was the uncle and nobody does anything to the uncle, but it's, she's got to go away. The injustice bothers me, you know, 123 years later. So she is married off to a preacher who is nothing special and they move west. They are just into the Yukon, I guess, Yukon territories, and he and the son die And so she is living alone there, very remote in a cabin. She's very sensitive to the native population. And she is remembering all of the things that she would bake and cook when she was back home in, I think, Missouri, is where she's from originally. And so the book is peppered with these great old fashioned recipes where everything is measured in teacup or half a teacup, and baking soda, baking powder is called saleratus, I think, and how she's making do with what she can get her hands on when she gets a little bit of apple or peach, which is like a complete treasure. So the recipe side of it was super delightful. She's also reading a cereal, you know, when the, when the authors would put it in the paper and... So she's reading Mrs. Chopin, Kate Chopin's serialized version of, I don't know which story it was, but she loves the empowerment that she feels when she reads those. And she's sewing for herself because she's a pioneer woman. It just kind of hit all of the buckets for me in a lot of ways. And then she makes her way northward past Ketchikan, and that's when she falls in with some great prostitutes up there and they help each other out and they forge these friendships. And she finds success in a couple different ways. And it is a completely uplifting book. At the beginning, you just think, this poor girl has no hope. And she really has a lot of losses. And then she turns it around. So good. So, anyway, I found this because the author and I went to the same undergrad. There was a reference to it in an alumni magazine. And that is my funny coincidence about uh, Gold Rush Bordellos for today. And then my last book is Someone Else's Shoes by Jojo Moyes. This takes place in present-day London, and it is a romp. It is surprisingly comp. It's complex. It's not—I don't know what I thought I was getting— I think I have read Me Before You and they were they I think they surprised me too. Do no, you,
0: I don't think I've read any of them.
1: So oh, okay. I have. I want to say that they're I expectations,
0: but I have no actual knowledge.
1: I I don't want to characterize them as light because she really digs into the emotional side, which, if you know me, is bottomless here somehow. But this story is really about one main character whose name I didn't write down up here in Sacramento. And she is all of the sudden faced with a high-value divorce on her hands. Her husband basically kicks her out, and she is used to a very particular lifestyle, and now she doesn't have that anymore. And she accidentally, there's a switch of gym bags, and so she is all of the sudden carrying around some pretty dowdy shoes and not her clothes, and she can't get into her house, and she is sideways about it. On the flip side, the other character, Sam, picks up the fancy shoes. So it's it's Nisha is going through the high-value divorce, and Sam is like a normal person. And so she picks up Nisha's super fancy, impossible-to-wear stiletto Christian Louboutin heels, and she has to go to a business meeting like right away. Everything is riding on this. So, of course, she's got to wear the fancy shoes into this business meeting and she nails it. And it, it's really not about the shoes. But I think what was really successful about this for me is how you are presenting yourself to the world the ending is such a satisfying ending in so many ways. But as I am navigating this year of making a lot of clothes, it was a really affirming book to read. Like, I don't want to wear four inch stiletto heels for sure. But I do want to dress more like I feel on the inside. And I think it was kind of cool to read about that and to present your authentic self and maybe not your like vampire self all the time. I'm so guilty for wearing a lot of black and very, very dark gray.
0: That's your Batman self.
1: But really, I feel I feel much more colorful on the inside. And I can see with a lot of my fabric choices lately that, okay, this is where this is going. Anyway, I was shocked to find myself So moved by this book from that perspective, from the how you want to present yourself to the world, because I think I always associated it strictly with vanity. That's only one sliver of it, I guess. And I loved this book. It was a really satisfying and interesting read, and it was totally about female friendships and the power of strong girlfriends. And I loved that. So I hope you find it. Hope you find your way to it. And that's my books.
0: (laughs) On the table. So as I mentioned, I was on vacation. And as you may have noticed, I'm on vacation again. So I have no cooking. I've done very little cooking. It has been a mad scramble in my world. It was also Boy 2's birthday. So I did, to be fair, make a lasagna and a tres leches cake. But I've probably talked about that for the past four years. So we don't need to rehash it. But they're both delicious. So lots of using up whatever was in the fridge. And then also things have gotten super busy additionally. So also like child has been at play rehearsals, so he's not coming home till late. So we're all eating at different times and it's just, it's been a scramble. So can I talk about restaurants a little bit? Because I've eaten at a lot of really good restaurants.
1: Yes, please.
0: So I'm going to go back to Charleston because I realized I didn't talk about that at all. And... Charleston has a lot of really good food.
1: Can we just acknowledge the fact that you have been all over the place, and that's kind of cool?
0: It is. It was. It has been a ridiculous month, quite frankly. I've gone from zero interesting travel in the past three years to like three places in three weeks, right. four weeks. Yeah, it's it's a little bit much. I wasn't sure of all of our events. It was a parents' weekend. I wasn't sure quite what was happening, but I knew our first night we were going to need a restaurant. So I found this place called the grocery, and it was delicious. And it was super fun because instead of organizing the menu by appetizer, salad, entrees, they did it by the main ingredient. So there was a vegetable section, there was a seafood section, because Charleston, and then a meat section. And then at the top of the list for each were the smaller plates and appetizers, and then you got into your bigger entrees, and you know, shareable things. So that was really fun. <laughs> Boy One and I shared an appetizer that was like a seafood crudo that was just bright and delicious and I think had kind of nice mild shaved radishes on there and it was really cool. And the thing about, I mean, it was delicious and I got to share it with my kid, which was fun because when he was young, he was 100% that grilled cheese, pasta, no sauce, just butter kid would not eat anything with flavor, basically, which is fine. A lot of kids are like that. But now he's adventurous and he'll, he'll we'll go to a restaurant and he'll be like, okay, what is the thing of this restaurant? What, what is something new I can try? And I don't know that he e- has eaten a lot of um, like sushi or anything, but he was like, yeah, sure, let's try it. And he seemed to enjoy it. So that was good. And then I think he got a steak for dinner, which <laughs> because he's a college student, he does not get very much. So that was fun. And that was really tasty. And then in Palm Springs, we went out for brunch to Cheeky's, which was on a whole bunch of lists as a good brunch place. I picked it because it had gluten-free waffles for my husband, which is very exciting because a lot of places your gluten-free option is going to be an omelet or something. So having an actual carb was kind of nice for him. And it had a bacon flight for you. And my boy. Yeah, and boy too. I just thought that sounded amazing. So it's five pieces of bacon of different flavors. So the first one was just a basic applewood smoked. And the next one had miso slathered on it, which was delicious because how much umami does one need? The answer is all of the umami. And then there was a maple one. And there was a Bloody Mary one, which was basically like a spicy tomato thing, which was my favorite. And then the final one was a jalapeno, which wasn't super, super spicy or anything, just a little bit more heat. And that one was Boy Two's favorite. And it was just delicious. It was really good bacon. And there's definitely a battle between do you want your bacon super crispy and burnt or do you want it really raw? And I think I am would, definitely, I would take it raw over crisp. This was just that nice, perfect middle Round, which was just ideal. It was really delicious. Not just for the bacon, but the whole breakfast was really delicious. My husband actually asked if we could go back there the next day. Oh, and that was where I had the most amazing eggs Benedict. That they did it on a cheddar scone, which just changed the game. And their hollandaise sauce was just bright and just so good. It was Excellent. really delicious. And then finally another dinner in Palm Springs at the Workshop, which has been around for several years I think and has won design awards, but we were eating outside. Anyway, I had a beet salad. It was so good. I nobody in my house will eat beets, so I it, love beets. Yeah. So, I figured I should take this chance to eat it. And it was had citrus in there as well. The beets were perfect. It had, I think it had some mint, but it had a smear of some kind of sauce on the side. It was so good. And just the combination. Like i I just can't remember what it was. I could look it up and figure it out. That's what it is. It's a date lab now. Oh, yum. No wonder it was so good. But I just, oh, it was so good. So good. So we had some really delicious, delicious places that we went to.
1: And and you're gonna list them in the show notes so that if people are traveling to Palm Springs or I will. Yeah. Charleston, they can Yeah. Great. How about you? Have you actually cooked? I have actually cooked because I haven't been anywhere except Sacramento and we're, we're get ready. Yeah, get ready. Tonight we have fancy dinner plans. So we'll talk about that when we record tomorrow. So I have two recipes and a technique, I guess. So my amazing neighbor has a lemon tree. I don't have a lemon tree because we have a lot of other trees that create incredible shade. We could grow artichokes and mold really well. So I was gifted a bunch of lemons. And earlier in the year, Monica had the idea that she was going to try cooking with some preserved lemons. And so with the thought that I would make us some preserved lemons, I set out to do just that. So the first step was to wash them really good and quarter them and shove a bunch of kosher salt into the cavity. So the Lemons initially didn't yield, they didn't yield very much juice, and I was nervous that they would spoil before they had a chance to juice, juice up. I should not have worried because these rock hard lemons, once the salt had been introduced, they juiced up Very quickly. So they sat on the countertop for about four days, and then I could compress it enough so that the juice rose above the level of the whole lemons. So now they are resting and fermenting in the fridge, and then in about three more weeks, I can pull them out, rinse them, and pack them in a jar for you and for me and maybe some for my awesome neighbor who gave us the lemons. And that, you're just supposed to use the skins. But I think I will take the pulp and then some of the skin and puree the whole thing and make like a lemon paste. And that, you can add a little bit of sugar to, and you can add some olive oil just to help keep it smooth and preserved. And it will last for six months to a year in the fridge, both the skins and the paste. So I'm very excited for the lemon project that's been going on at our house.
0: So now I actually have to figure out what to do with them. Yeah. Uh-oh.
1: But that's I'm sure. seeing some great recipes like good risotto type things that would be Simon friendly or more chicken or vegetable tagine type recipes or chicken for us. So I'm very excited to see what we come up with with our preserved lemons. Hoping that that all goes well. I have two other recipes for you. One is a vegetarian recipe because since since Monica was away, I'm taking up the helm there. I did a lemon artichoke and asparagus penne with garlic butter cream sauce. And it was delicious. Yeah. I did use chicken stock, which totally erases the vegetarian, but you can use vegetable stock or water. And the reason why I use chicken stock is... I wanted a lighter cream sauce, so you could also just use all cream and have it be super luscious and velvety, but that's how I lightened it up, and because we are omnivoric, sure, uh, it works for us. I loved this recipe so much. I think it would be much better with cascatelle, but I'm out. And for those of you who don't know what cascatelli is, oh, there's a show note here but I don't know. I have talked about cascatelli a hundred times. It's a pasta that I love. Okay, onwards. I made chicken and and tomatoes with pesto and herbs, and I wrapped it in foil envelopes. So it was just a chicken breast that I lightly pounded and salt and pepper seasoning, and then not a lot of pesto, just maybe just a tablespoon And then additional herbs and a little bit of olive oil. And I stirred that into the tomatoes. And then I spooned it on top of the chicken, closed it up, baked it for, this sounds like the simplest thing. It made the most succulent chicken. It was, this is how I'm going to cook chicken forever now. That's not true. But nearly. It was such a delicious, tender chicken. All of that. I mean, it was really lean It was super flavorful. This came out of my America's Test Kitchen family cookbook, and it called for zucchini, but I didn't have any, and I ended up cooking asparagus on the side, and then I served this over rice. It was such a great dinner, and it made for incredible lunch the next day, and because there was so much flavor and seasoning and moisture in the in the foil envelope that when I reheated it, it didn't do that weird chicken thing because mm-hmm. there was enough moisture. So that is a new technique that I'm very happy to bring into my uh, repertoire. And I think that'll be a good one to teach my kid who's going to have his own apartment next year because it's a no-fail way to cook a chicken breast and not have it be super overcooked, you know? Yeah, it's so easy.
0: I have done that in the past with fish as well because it keeps the moisture in. So it, same thing, like doesn't yeah. get too dried out. And I think, it, I guess with fish, you could probably put the asparagus in the packet because it doesn't cook as long. But yeah, it's, it's, it's great.
1: I haven't tested if it would work with parchment over
0: boil. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, think so. same, same.
1: Yeah. It's just harder, I think, to do the. Get a good folding. seal. Yeah. Good, yeah. But. Anyway, successful,
0: and will repeat. Five stars. Cool. All right. Well, we have some yarn shopping to do, people, and I have another class. And we
1: have some more restaurants to try, so the rest will be forthcoming.
0: Yes. See you in, well, as far as you guys are concerned. See you One in One second.
1: Minute. Yeah. <laughs> We're back. We are. Part, Part two.
0: Part <laughs> oh, This is always interesting. Um, so... We've been eating good food. So we wanted to talk about that. This is our, we go to Sacramento and we eat fancy.
1: So we're about to tell you about our fine dining experience at Localis here in Sacramento. Localis is a really special restaurant. And for us, this is akin to taking in a Broadway show or seeing some kind of amazing performance because to sit table side at a chef's bench and watch them while they work and ask questions and hear about the food is for us as like foodies and home cooks is super interesting. We also recognize that this is not something that everyone is interested in or is able to do. And so we're kind of owning that side of it, that And that's why we wanted to share it, so that you can hear about this cool restaurant.
0: Yes. uh, They just got their first Michelin star when the ratings came out at the end of last year. They've been in business about seven years, I think he said, Mm -hmm. in Sacramento the whole time. So we were at the chef's counter, 12 seats. There were regular tables as well that were kind of on their own schedule, all the same set menu. And the 12 of us... We're all eating at the same time. And then the chef would tell us about the dishes. And for the people that got the wine pairing, he would talk about the wines. He is his own sommelier. So the wines went with the food as he picked them out. None of us did the wine pairing, but Courtney did the non alcoholic pairing, which was super fun. And she let me taste some of the things. So that was really, that was a really cool part of it as well. I thought
1: it was a worthwhile add on because. I like weird shrubs and accoutrement.
0: <laughs> yeah, it was, it, and it was, it was not just drinks. There were kind of like a, a soups and stuff. And hey, anyway, we'll get into all of that. But it was a very interesting. It was not just drinks to accompany your meal. So, twelve courses. It was two and a half hours. Yeah, yeah. We should all say local.
1: that this is Chef Christopher Barnum Dan at Localis.
0: And one of the things I really liked about it, I guess. An overall impression was that, as you might guess from the name, it's all kind of local produce and very Californian forward. A lot of the courses were named after specific areas. So a lot of Sacramento stuff from where we are. But also that a San Francisco-inspired one, Tahoe, and Los Angeles. and So that I thought was really cool. And we could see them preparing dishes. We got to talk to the chefs as they were working. So that's always fun. Even
1: when we eat out normally – I'm always inspired to go home and cook a little something different and inspired. So this will greatly affect, well, I'm not going to go home and make a 12-course meal, but but
0: there's always something, there's always some really intriguing takeaway. So we started off with what they called fancy French onion dip, which was like a puffed potato chip, but I mean, um, but like a long oblong one with some creme fraiche and caviar and pickled shallots. And so all those flavors together tasted like an onion dip, but obviously very elevated. I just thought that was super fun. I, I mean, I love French onion dip. And it, so this one I thought really hit the spot.
1: It's, it was a fun starter. Yeah. And then wanna... they had a Sacramento salad, which we watched them prepare on repeat my favorite part about this was the marigold dressing, which was such a vibrant color and really cheerful, and I will definitely be figuring out how to make something similar at home. My
0: Oh, and that had the romesco, like, that oh, was pickled, maybe pickled. pickled yeah, yeah, that that was romesco. Really...
1: My pairing on that one was a cream of the garden soup, which tasted like a super yummy slurp of... Broccoli cauliflower
0: soup or something like Mm -hmm. that was delicious. Maybe it was the romesco as well. Perhaps. Yeah. Number three was the nigiri. You really liked that one because of all the texture. Yeah,
1: I loved this. It was a kompachi fish and then layered on top of it, it had beet, a, a kombu brined beet, and then pickled radish and shoyu pearls and shoyu gel and... It had a pickled wasabi sorbet. I'm going to let everybody think about that for a second. (laughs) They brought it out. It was on dry ice, and then they cut it and put it, placed it on, and it had a little puffed rice cake on top of it all. So when you bit into this thing, it had soft and crispy and crunchy and cold, and it was just all the textures, and I thought that was delightful.
0: And then Course Four was probably one of my favorites, which was an avocado toast, but a little bit Thai inspired. So there was a little bit of of zippiness going on. Obviously the avocado was on sourdough toast. There was some fried egg yolk. There was a little curry going on, some crispy jamon, basically bacon. So that one just all the layers of things go again, multiple flavors. Hitting all the cool notes and just that little different flavor with the Thai, Thai Thai-inspired seasoning going on.
1: Then there was, this is the dish that made them, which is a New York deli pastrami-inspired octopus. So it's octopus with a pastrami powder with a little bit of sauerkraut and like a rye parsnip tuile and some horseradish parsnip puree. And that was really interesting textures, too. We watched them grill the octopus in the wood-fired oven right next to us. Yes. We smelled like
0: wood-fired like oven afterward. Home, yeah.
1: Superb texture. They had that thing. They were cooking the octopus with a stopwatch. I yeah. mean, they were super precise. That's not anything I will attempt at home, but... Yeah, but it was delicious. Yes. Yeah, it was good. And my pairing with that one was a celery seed soda that was
0: delicious because I love celery. And- I mean, I thought it was really good as well, and I do not like celery, right. but it was definitely a nice – because we were starting to get a little bit more into heavier flavors. Still not super intense, but that was a really nice – Palate cleanser. Yeah. Very refreshing. And then – oh, then it was the San Francisco one. So it was kind of a – kind of a Chopino idea, I think, was what he said. So black cod and some potato, Dungeness crab. It was a hollandaise, a smoked cod hollandaise sauce, and a sauce crabeach, which is um, involves cooked eggs, baby seaweeds, puffed capers, some lettuce. That one had that hollandaise was really pretty cool. Oh my gosh, it it kind
1: of tasted like lobster to me because it was so rich. But they were also mindful to not overwhelm you. The portions were really reasonable, so that you could taste things, but you weren't completely
0: overwhelmed. Yeah, like maybe four bites of every, it was kind of yeah, about what I was getting, yeah. I think. And that was just perfect.
1: My pairing on this one was an awesome mushroom clam in quotation marks chowder. So there was no clam in it. The mushroom was... It did was, kind of taste
0: like a clam chowder. Yeah, though, it yeah. had
1: a little tang, I think. That yeah. The mushroom was like super frothy and mm-hmm. almost like a mousse. I don't know how they do it. I don't I don't know how these That's people eke the eke the flavor out of a mushroom, but, but they do. it was wonderful.
0: And then it was the Sierra one, a braised rabbit tortellini with stinging nettle pesto and mushrooms. M- lots of mushrooms, a garlic confit. I like rabbit, so I was super excited about this one. I was nervous because I am not a rabbit. It was just a little tiny bit of rabbit. It, but it was. There was a ton of flavor in that. I mean that that one. That was when the flavors really started punching. I like that one a lot. I mean, pasta and rabbit. So, I was happy.
1: The eighth course was called Painter's Palette. I was super excited for this one, and it did not disappoint. No, it was this little tiny palette like an old wooden painter's palette made out of matzo with six six little seven, yeah. little flavors and the instructions as per the chef were to watch your dinner companion eat theirs because it's kind of an explosion of different notes and things hit at different times yeah. and that was sort of delightful it was performance art that we could be included in. Yeah. And so there also, was like a
0: lemon one and there were some spicier ones. I can't remember what other the, – the lemon was the one that hit first, so I think that's why I remember it the most.
1: Yeah, and there were other herbs and yep. there was edible herbs and flowers on that and yep. like a faux foie gras,
0: fo, but it was – The faux gras.
1: Faux gras
0: mousse. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Really sweet. And then it was the little pupusa. Yep. Tiny little kind of silver dollar-sized pupusa with a blue corn masa. Mm-hmm. And then inside was...
0: A kiwi pork chili verde.
1: Right. And it had wonderful toppings of like pickled red onion and kiwi salsa and
0: Oh, the crema. hot sauce was actually pretty... It yeah. had a little bit of zip. Yeah. Which I feel like you don't usually... Unless you're going to a specifically... Mexican fine dining, you know, restaurant or probably Thai. The European fine dining, you don't usually get a lot of spice right? or heat. This So was, this was delightful.
1: And it totally matched with the blue corn masa, which I yeah. thought had superb – it was so great, really yeah. flavorful.
0: And this one we saw getting prepared a lot. I think it was just right at our station and the guy, what the, the chefs at our part of the bar we're working on. So we saw them twirling the pickled red onions and we saw so many of the papooses coming out of the, yeah, the, the wood fired oven. Yeah. So that was kind of fun to finally because we're at course nine and it was so it was good to finally get to taste it ourselves. Lots of the the kiwi salsa we saw around there. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And then the tenth course was a wagyu bavette with red curry risotto. And a Vietnamese carrot salad, with some kind of fancy fish sauce and crispy shallots and mint. This was the culminating of the plates. It was oh, like yes. the this most. This is the biggest
0: flavor, for sure.
1: Biggest flavor, most toothsome, sort of weighty of of yes. all the courses.
0: I and mean, even so the red curry, yeah, was pretty had had a lot of flavor.
1: Yeah, it was really different. And I appreciated that. And that's, that one was called the melting pot. So it's Southeast flavors in LA. So that was really fun. But I think one of the stars was this intermezzo that we had. Oh yeah, that was good too. So they served us after that, that really powerful meaty course, they served us these two little scoops of sorbet And one was a wild clover sorbet that we were supposed to eat first. And then there was a rose geranium sorbet. The wild clover one was basically oxalis, which is sour grass. And it was so grassy and fresh and crisp and surprising. It was
0: delicious.
1: It was so fun.
0: I'm not super fond of like the smell of cut grass. I know a lot of people really like it. I do not, so I was a little bit worried. I would have taken, if I weren't so
1: full, I would have taken a pint of it home.
0: It was beautiful.
1: It was so cool.
0: That was so good.
1: And then the rose geranium one was very floral. Yes. And beautiful. Just Mm -hmm. like really fresh and the perfect kind of intermezzo.
0: So then we had two dessert courses, which is how we roll anyway. Yeah. I mean, why not? (laughs) I guess actually there were three because they always give you little yeah. snicky snacks at the end. first one was It's Not Tiramisu, which was an Italian cake. I mean, I, I didn't quite understand that name, but it was really good. So it was an olive oil cake with fennel sorbet and kumquat marmalade. and I think it's
1: a yeah. nod to that Italy has a similar climate and, you know, the olive oil mm, here. That's mar- true. Yeah, the fennel know, and the
0: kumquats. Yeah. yeah. It's all the same thing.
1: So... The olive oil was just extraordinary because they used it in the cake. They used an olive oil powder on top of the
0: dessert. Yeah, that looked like powdered sugar.
1: And then they encapsulated olive oil in isomalt, which I have only ever seen on Great British Baking Show. Mm -hmm. I've never actually tasted it. And I loved that. That was That was like you would kind of put it into your mouth and it would melt a little bit like a cough drop And then it would be this kind, this splash of olive oil. It's super fruity.
0: Uh Olive oil, yeah, that was amazing. It
1: was a really interesting way to taste olive oil. Yeah. And then we rounded it out with a carrot cake, which wasn't really a cake. It was a.
0: It's kind of like a carrot beignet donut. Yeah, yeah. With white chocolate goat cheese, cream inside. And then what was, and then there was a thing that looked like a carrot. I didn't, I guess, oh, I guess that's the, I didn't, is that the white chocolate carrot? There was a little carrot that looked like a carrot and some carrot cake dirt. dirt. And And I will say, I am not a big fan of carrot cake. I like the cream cheese frosting, but why are you going to put carrots in a cake? I don't know. A lot of people like it, but this, this was very tasty. This was
1: very tasty. And mine was paired with carrot cake hot chocolate. You can just think about that for a minute. It
0: carrot, was actually amazing.
1: Carrot cake hot chocolate. This was so good. It was light and weirdly carrot-y and weirdly chocolate There was a gentleman seated next to me who had also done the non-alcoholic pairing, and he was like, dip your donut in the hot chocolate, and he was right. That was a great move.
0: I thought it almost was caramel like, because I guess they had roasted the carrots, or I don't know what they did to them, but it got all that sweetness and the sugar. And it was exceptional. It was pretty cool. And apparently, they always have a hot chocolate on the menu finisher. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. they'll have different ones peanut butter and caramel, and, you know, I don't know what else. But, yeah, we got carrots, so that was pretty good. And then then they brought us little final bits and pieces. There were some caramels and macarons and... A little a, pat de fruit. Yep, and a, a homemade Ferrero Rocher. Yes. Okay. And then we got sent home with banana bread, a little individual loaf of banana bread. For breakfast. For breakfast, which we were too full to eat yeah. still the next morning. But it was...
1: It was totally an experience, and I hope you'll forgive us sharing it with you because we we really really enjoyed it, and it's not something certainly not something we do every no e- a very ever <laughs> <laughs> once I mean once a year <laughs> once a year when we're in Sacramento, but we do think that it's it's kind of like art and dinner and performance, and it's a it's a lot of super interesting things all wrapped into one, and that's why we wanted to share it.
0: Yeah, it felt like a really personal experience for the chef. He had picked the playlist. He knew the music that was that was all his music that he was picking. He had picked the drinks. There was an additional wine pairing you could do that was sort of really fancy, rare wines and extra special yeah. stuff, which I don't know that anybody did that, but it just all felt like his place. Yeah, uh, and he talked about it all, and he was really friendly, and it was nice. It was, it was, was nice, really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: So thanks, everyone, for letting us share that. Yeah. And then uh, we have some easel adventures to talk about. Yes. That's not nearly as exciting as...
0: I don't know. Those pictures were pretty cool.
1: Well, the museum. Okay. The museum, for sure. The rest of it, I don't know. So before we got into the car and brought ourselves up to Sacramento... What had been going on on the easel was my attempts to be working towards my goals for the month. Rounding out February, I worked really big one day just to kind of loosen up and painted a gigantic dinosaur. And then was catching myself wondering whether dinosaurs have two claws or three on their hands, paws. What do we call dinosaur arms? That was really fun to paint even though the whole time I was still struggling with Julia Child. I'm going to go back and work on Julia Child some more when I'm home. But I did start a new painting of wild geese, and I am super excited. I think it'll be ready to share by the time we get we get this one posted, so hopefully that will be in my Instagram account for people to take a peek at. And then today, speaking of easels, sort of, Actually, it falls more under the needles, but I went over to the Crocker Museum here in Sacramento to catch the Alexander McQueen exhibit that they have going on and to walk the permanent collection because there are a couple pieces in there that I really enjoy, that giant robin that I keep talking about. This exhibit was chiefly based on photographs that Anne Ray had taken during Alexander McQueen's career as a fashion designer. And I really honestly didn't know his biographical story. I knew that he had had some controversy and I knew that he had jumped around between a couple fashion houses, but I didn't realize he was so young. I didn't realize that he was really struggling, and I had no idea of his personal biography. The very compact exhibit, though, was super moving because she was granted access to all facets of his creative life, and she knew him really well, and he paid her in clothes, and so when they'd show up someplace, she'd be wearing his jacket, and they'd be talking and everything, and then he'd turn and say, hey, nice jacket, which I just think that's kind of charming. My takeaway from the exhibit was that he really wanted to protect women, and the clothing was the armor in a lot of ways, and that's for various reasons. Many are have to do with his personal upbringing and his relationship with his mom and his sisters. And he there were a few quotes during the exhibit where he said that he wanted to put something on a woman so that she looked untouchable that nobody would hurt her and i just thought that language was very interesting he had a whole collection that had incredible bird themes i guess he was into falconry and he he did a couple pieces with like fully taxidermied birds of prey and a lot of his fabric choices Have bird themes in them or feather and plumage. One of the things that I really appreciate about the Crocker Museum is how their curators tackle thornier sides of the the more challenging things. For example, he designed a piece using horsehair, like as a skirt, and that was kind of a tribal reference. And now we would definitely call that cultural appropriation, and they took the time to explain that in the in, in the context of the piece and how during that time it was done a lot and people weren't really discussing it. Nobody was calling attention to it, but now that would definitely be walking a line or crossing a line and just sort of acknowledging it so that a conversation can continue about those references. I loved seeing these clothes on a mannequin in the gallery, but I really loved seeing his actual patterns, pattern pieces laid out. They had, yeah, they had them flat lay in some cases outside of the main gallery with his handwriting on it. And he was apparently, he was a master draftsperson. And so seeing these pieces cut meticulously, and he he was also an exceptional tailor. And just as I'm doing this sewing journey, it was so fascinating to see works in progress, you know, the things that he hadn't completed. I did spend some time in the permanent collection of the gallery. I went and visited that bird that I love, the big gigantic California robin, I went and saw the ceramic piece that was hard to photograph last year, but it's the, this is the Crystal Mori piece, Venus on the Waves, and it's just a gorgeous piece of porcelain. It's very erotic. I mean, it's super cool. And then I looked at some of the Crocker family china, which I love. There was an old man in the gallery and he, caught me taking photographs of it. And I tra- was trying to photograph the underside of a teacup. And he goes, well, I guess it's pretty. <laughs> it made me laugh. And then I saw a new, I found a new favorite piece. It's a George Grosz watercolor called Street in Paris from 1930. And it's this really sweet street like streets of paris these two people are walking away and there's a little girl with a red beret walking towards the viewer i think what's magical about this piece is that the woman's calves are just negative space and then her actual like the gait of her shoe is just so exact and amazing that you your brain does the your brain does the work for the rest of that of of her figure. I just think it's a really lovely painting. So glad to have found a new piece. Yeah, I I think that this Alexander McQueen exhibit might be touring a little bit, so if you're interested, you could look for it in your area or maybe there's a little a little write-up on the Crocker Gallery or Crocker Museum's website. It was I'm really glad that I went over
0: and caught it. So that is the easel. Okay, time for the star of the show on the needles. But first, what have I actually been working on? When last we spoke, I had started a sweater. And I have since frogged that sweater and started another one. So I was working on the Paul Klee sweater, which is a super cool pattern by Mindori Harose. And I love it. And I'm going to make it. However, Yarns I had chosen were just fighting with each other. And I had posted a photo and you guys gave me some great suggestions about another color to throw in there. And as I was doing it, it just felt like I loved my mini skeins and I loved my speckly yarn. And I felt that putting them together, I wasn't noticing either one of them. All I was getting was just color everywhere. And I wasn't going to be happy with the finished object. And you weren't going to notice the sweater. It was just going to be all this color, which was not what I wanted. So I pulled it out, and I think I'm going to need to rethink my Paul Klee and make it a little more planful and sit down. And I've been looking for things this weekend. Still not there, but it will happen sometimes. So, But I do love my speckle yarn, which is from Lemonade Shop Simple Sock in the colorway, UGG People which I just find delightful. So it's kind of a very, very pale gray background with just bright pops of color. Super fun. So what I have made it into, or I'm attempting to make it into, is a gridlines sweater by Suzanne Summer. So same yarn. This pattern has been in my queue for years, years and years, very long time. It's kind of a boxiest shape, basically stockinette, but every so many rows, you do a purl row. So you end up and you're slipping stitches in other spots. So you end up with squares that outline that are outlined by these purls and slip stitches that make grid lines. This construction is also super cool. You're knitting it in pieces. You knit like the right front and then the right back, and then you're going to connect it all somehow. I haven't gotten that far. So you do have to be pretty precise with well, theoretically with your gauge, but you at least have to, you have to decide how long you want it to be because you're knitting it sideways. So you cast on the number of stitches you need to get from your collar to your hem all at once, and then you're knitting sideways out from the center. So once you decide how long you want it to be, that's what it's going to be. There's no trying it on. Is this going to fit? Do I want it a little longer? No, you've, you've decided and committed. So I think it's going okay. Okay. I was a little bit worried and the squares are a decent size so I I mean I guess you could make half a square at some point if you wanted to cut it off that way or maybe make the hem. There's a hem portion of it that's knit along with everything else. You could make that a little shorter. It seems to be fitting. I held my first piece over an already completed sweater that I have that I like the fit of. That seems to be going well. It matches up pretty closely and I love the way the yarn and the pattern are working together. So I'm super happy with it. I have not worked a ton on it. You do have to pay attention because of the grid lines and the the interesting construction. So I haven't gotten a lot done on it, but we are getting there and I'm much happier about it. I've also made progress on Simon's socks. It's uh, my usual OMG heel. The yarn is a gray and blue gradient from Online Super Sock. It has some Boring number colorway, but basically it's grays and blues. Finished the first one, and I have just, as I was sitting down in the bar chatting with other knitters this afternoon, finished the toe of the second one. So we're making progress. And now I've got to the easy part for that until I get to the heel. So that's good. Then I have lots of fun yarn. So before I get to what other yarn I have coming in, I took two classes while I was here at Stitches West the first was a landscape embroidery class with Rosanna Diggs and she has a booth here as well and she sells these really cute embroidery kits that I got give one you a last year. which you got last yeah. year and I was really tempted, but I didn't feel like I could do it but I think I totally could have because the kit does really have everything It gets the hoop, the fabric, all the floss, the needles, the pattern, the booklet that explains all the stitches and then what order to do the stitches in and where you put them and had to do the whole thing, so it was definitely nice to have the class and have her walk us through it, and it was really fun. So we did this little seaside scene. There's rocks, there's grass. I learned how to do Peking knots and French knots, and you nearly finished it. I did. Class, I did. I was amazing. Very fancy. So now I have to actually finish it. But I also felt like this worked well with my goals. I had one of my goals was three different non-knitting, but fiber-related activities. I think I had a like a bracelet making kit that I wanted to use and a couple other things. So, but this felt like in that genre as well. So I'm super excited. Hopefully I will actually finish (laughs) the project. I still have, I don't know, maybe a third more to do, something like that. And I could probably expand out my edges a little bit more. So we will see how that goes. But that was fun. She was a really good teacher. I got some cute little embroidery scissors as well. Yeah, so that one was super fun. And then I took a quick hour and a half class on color confidence with Janine Bouges. I forget how she pronounced her name. She has been teaching Farrell color work for years, apparently, like 18 years. And so there would always be one or two or five people in the class who loved the class, loved the information, wanted to do Farrell, but didn't feel that they knew how to make the colors work. Farrell uses a lot of colors very interesting. So she started doing lectures for guilds about color confidence. And then this was the first year she was doing the class at Stitches. So a little bit was just basic color theory and how it works. We had a a three-in-one color tool that quilters use, which is just color cards, but it shows you what like yellow looks like, but all through the tones and tints and shades and so you could get something that's based, that looks kind of like a brown, but it's a yellow technically because that's how color works. Who knew? I mean, she did. I didn't. Now I do know. So when you're trying to pick colors, it gives you kind of more of a range ways to look at things. And then she had some handy tips about ways to pick palettes. Like, you know, if you see a, an inspiration photo that you like, just pull the colors out of there. The artist has basically already done the work for you. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, make use that as your palette and go find yarn in those colors uh, and work with that. So things like that. So it was good. I don't know that I still <laughs> that I feel terribly color confident yet, but I I think I have some ideas, and uh, we will see how it works in the future. And then yeah, so it's it's been a fun weekend. We've we've been hitting the market today was definitely more crowded. Saturday obviously it's the big day for the market. I went to the Thursday night preview. That was really quiet and nice. And I didn't buy a lot then. I bought one kit that I wanted because it was a California-themed mini project bag from a, a new vendor.
1: Super adorable. I'm Super adorable. envious.
0: And came with mini skeins and some California-themed stitch markers. And that one did sell out pretty quickly, so I'm
1: but we can still link to that maker yes, so in because case people
0: are interested in project bags. Yes, because we did go back to that booth and we both bought additional project <laughs> bags because they're, they're really really good. well
1: made and yeah. fun. I have one with a cheetah. Yes. That's so great.
0: Aqua fabric with cheetahs on it is it very Courtney and then a bright lining in the inside. My main thing that I was looking for was yarn for a Dark Academia sweater by Sharon Hartley, which came out of few months ago oh in October it's looks like a kind of basic yoke sweater but it has color work that looks like very gothic the outlines of a very gothic stained glass window so I really it's just gorgeous it's going to be a very mind intense lots of paying attention kind of sweater so I wanted a nice dark moody background and then a bright contrasty contrast color So we spent, I mean, we spent three, two and a half days looking at dark moodies. I figured that was kind of the key. I had it narrowed down to two, and one of the choices, there were only two skeins left, so I was kind of like, well, that's not going to work. So I ultimately settled on this beautiful, super deep, foresty green from Porter Wool Company, which I'm super excited about. And then we had to find a contrast, which, whew, I would have thought that would be the easy part, but it was tough. And it was a good thing I had Courtney because I was trying to buy colors and she would tell me, nope, that's the wrong shade. Temperature. Temperature, yeah. So it was very good. And we had another friend with us and there were things that she and I liked and then there were things that Courtney and I liked and there was nothing that all three of us kind of agreed on. But then we finally found one from Serendipity, and we we're all like, yes. So it's this very, very pale, peachy, peach. it's pinky... Blossom. Yeah. But so it works beautifully with the green. Yeah. And it's a color that I don't think I would want on my own. I don't want to say that's necessarily outside of my comfort zone. It's pretty neutral. But it, I think it's going to look really great and just pop. And because of the color theory, mm-hmm.
1: when it's paired up against that green, it reads like a beautiful,
0: warm peach. Yeah. So I'm pretty excited about this whole thing. There was there was some other other purchases, but that was the thing that I was focused on and I was very excited about.
1: Well, no one will be surprised to hear that I did not finish my Stephen West 2021 shawlography shawl. But I am diligently working away at the brioche and I will finish this. I bought the yarn a year ago, and I am maybe, what what would you say, 80% complete, which is basically a miracle.
0: <laughs> I mean, yeah, because you put a lot of... You were going super fast. I mean, that's how those shawls work, is because then you get yeah. to the part where it's 20 minutes for half a row, and it right. takes forever.
1: Yeah. I'm in the the, the 430 yeah. stitches across slog right now. Um but I will complete it because I bought pink wool fabric to match the pink baubles in that <laughs> shawl. So the show must go on. While here at Stitches, though, I have been dreaming about what I'm going to knit next. I thought I was going to have a plan coming into it. And I. Wait,
0: you had several plans. I
1: had several plans, which is totally on brand for me. And a good way to approach
0: stitches. Right. Because otherwise there's too um, many choices.
1: I really wanted to find some some kind of pattern or book that had (laughs) really intricate, complicated, over-the-top embroidery, to be honest. Because how hard could that be? How hard can it be? I found something that is not intricate or complicated, but it excites me, and I have bought yarn for a whole entire sweater. I am going to knit the Coralia by Midori Heroes.
0: Oh, same, yeah.
1: It's the same designer Mm -hmm. as yours? Yes, as the Paul Klee. Oh, okay. And this sweater is, the body of it is one single color, and then the yoke has this really interesting ruzamine embroidery. So it's kind of like a woven... I I have never done it before. Monica... I
0: have done it in Sock Madness socks many years ago. It's a very cool technique.
1: I'm excited. I bought some brand new um, tapestry needles to achieve this. I think I need tapestry needles. I will use the tapestry needles because I like that kind of thing. And so to make my life really easy... I bought a Miss Babs Katahdin. This is like one gigantic skein of gorgeous fingering weight yarn that will do the whole sweater. How do you like that? And it is in stock, and I am so excited. It's like a deep green. It's totally a Courtney color and I will, Monica is going to give me a little bit of scrap yarn to do the woven part because it doesn't really require that much yardage and that allows me to really play with my color palette and then I actually bought Impulse yarn. that was
0: very exciting.
1: I saw this blue yarn at the Teton Yarn Company and it is called Mountain Stream and it is a, a really beautiful blue with a little bit of turquoise running through it a river runs through it basically and i i'm thinking maybe a sweater vest a v-neck sweater vest i haven't found it yet i have no idea we'll see
0: it is beautiful i have never seen her move that quickly around yarn they only
1: yeah. they only had 3 skeins and it was it's like right in that range for how much i need for a sweater vest and i had a show panic moment where it might not be there. And that's probably gonna be it for me yarn wise. There is one other can I talk about what I, what I think the show oh yeah. Like so walking around stitches is really exciting because you get to see what everybody else is wearing and you get to see all of the pattern, the sample uh knits in each booth and and see what's kind of trending. Well the Sample pattern trend that I noticed right away was the pressed flower.
0: Mostly the shawl.
1: Mostly the shawl. We did see a couple hat samples. And then we saw a couple cardigans. Mm -hmm. And there's a cowl online that I had flagged before we even came that I really loved. And so I am super excited to find maybe in a little while... (laughs) find yarn to do that because as a pattern, I think it's really fun. But the walking around sweater of the year was Monica's love Love note.
0: Yeah. Which is funny because that pattern came out several years ago. And when I was looking last year for yarn for it, because I felt like I was the last person to have made it, there were a ton of them, tons of shop samples Tons of people wearing them. And I talked to one vendor who was wearing hers today, and she said she felt like she was the last person to knit it. I was like, nope. (laughs) So that was really interesting. We saw Uh, so many of them, especially yesterday. Yeah. So that was really fun. So there was also the boucle yarn. Yes. Which that was not everywhere, but in a lot of places. People were using it especially for their Stitches exclusive colorways, I thought. So they have a special colorway specifically four stitches, and the dyers would do it on all their bases. And so there was a lot of boucle. The boucle was strangely compelling, except that a lot of neons and very bright 80s colors or 90s. I don't know. Yeah. So that kind of held me back, and I wasn't sure what you would do with the boucle. But yes, the zebra stripe was the other thing we saw in several places. And so by zebra stripe, you mean... One of the plies of the yarn, it's not fully marled, marled when you have two different colors and they're twisted together. This one would be maybe a four ply or I I don't know exactly it, but it would have one thin stripe of black running through the skein. And it was interesting because we saw a couple, I would have thought they would all end up working out the same knit up, but we saw a couple different examples. Some of them, the black was much more noticeable. Some of it was very subtle and just textured It a little bit had to do with the color of the rest of the yarn. It was very interesting kind of yarn. So I did get a skein of that from Wonderland Dye Works in a, what did I get? Oh, it's a gray. It's mostly a light gray or, you know, a basic gray. uh, And it has a little bit of purple in it. So yeah, it's been fun. There's been a lot of interesting things to, to see and people to talk to. And it's been
1: a fun weekend. Absolutely. It's always good. Great to be around people who are doing what they love to do and are so joyful about it. And we feel really lucky that it's right in our backyard and it's easy for us to just drive up here mm-hmm. and we're not impacted by all of the snow that's happening oh, in the yeah. rest of California. Oh, my gosh. So we feel really, really lucky. It makes it easy that we can sort of share this experience and then get lots of inspiration inspiration to take back and carry on.
0: Yeah. And I, I enjoy it also because we do have pretty different aesthetics and we find different <laughs> patterns. And so it's really, not that you would be competing over yarn, but it's just a totally different, Yeah, I don't get caught. It's like, this is what you want? Okay. I can look for that. It's super fun. I'm into it, but I don't feel invested in it the same way as when I'm looking for my yarn. Likewise. Yeah. So yeah. So it's been a super fun weekend. Yeah. It's I'm- nice to spend it with 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 Courtney,
1: and we figured out my decade um, yes sweater. Well,
0: we'll see. Knock on wood. We'll see. We'll see. There may be an update on
1: my seven next time. sweater. Yeah, I had some help. So
0: not really. <laughs> we just looked at it. But encouragement is that's always true. good. Okay, that's fair. I'm good at encouragement.
1: I completely agree, and fair. I feel like I am equipped to pick the sweater up. Excellent. So fun. And
0: the show. All right. Well, until next time, make sure to do something you love every day. Thanks, everyone. Bye. (laughs) I totally want to call this episode the Gold Rush Bordello. Probably. (laughs) Probably I won't. Show notes can be found at craftcookreadrepeat.podbean.com. You can find us on Instagram. This Craft Cook Read Repeat Courtney S F. That's C-O-R-T-N-Y-S F. On Ravelry, I'm Magdon, M-A-G-D-O-N. And if you have any questions or comments, email us at craftcookreadrepeat at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.